All right, folks, and welcome back to Music Madness. I'm your host, Kent. Are you excited? I am so excited. I really appreciate how many people have been starting to listen and participate in the first theme that we've run through, but we're getting down to the business end of this series. As a reminder, we're going through the bracket to determine which album is the greatest album to ever win the Grammy for Album of the Year. We're into the final four. We've eliminated 61 albums because there's been 65 Album of the Year is given out. There were some great albums in there. And if you want to hear how we actually got to this point, there are five previous episodes in this season that can walk you through the results, how which albums have been eliminated. And there's a lot of great info on the albums, the artists, and what was going on during the time when they won or who they beat all the way through. So some exciting information in there if you want to learn a little bit more about the Grammy Album of the Year process. Today, however, we're going to get to our final two. We have four albums left, two battles that you all voted on, and we're going to come up with the results. These two will then battle it out in our first Music Madness Season Championship. They will forever be the first winners of our bracket, no matter how many of these we do. I've been really enjoying seeing how this is processed, how it's played out. I've learned a ton. Hopefully you all have enjoyed what we're doing. And uh, hopefully this will end any debate as to what is the greatest Grammy winning album of all time. So let's get into it. We got a lot to go through today. Um, So what do we have in store? Before we get to the results, we're going to go on a little bit of a track by track examination of our final four albums. As I was going through this, it's so interesting to see how different each of these albums are and how they were put together. Some of the albums were pulled in songs from a number of different writers and then performed them. They go out, they find the great track and give it their own spin. Others are singer-songwriters that have wrote and produced every track on the album and have put in all the different work that goes into that. Some are collaborators where they work as a group. Maybe one person writes most of the stuff and another person comes in and edits it. The bands where then there's other bands where every member brings something to the table. Each one of them writes something or writes the words and then the music. Um, some are just groups of great songwriters. It doesn't matter who puts it together. It's a hit. Um, there's no real wrong way to create an album, it seems. So it, it's really been fascinating to kind of look at each one of these and see how they all came together. Let's get into it. Um, just a reminder, our four remaining albums were all four of the number one seeds in their brackets. So first off, we're going to start in the modern bracket. We have Michael Jackson's Thriller from 1984 versus his opponent from the ladies bracket, which is Carol King's Tapestry. So let's really get into Thriller and go through the tracks and really talk about what was going on in this one. So there were nine tracks on Thriller. Seven of them were released as singles. As I said in the last pod, they were pulled from 30 tracks for the album that Michael had pulled together, and these nine were picked. And if you remember, Michael really wanted to try and put together an album where he said all of the songs were hits. And I think he kind of did it if all seven of them were released as singles, which is crazy. So four of them were written by Jackson. Three of them were written by Rob Temperton. One by James Ingram and Quincy Jones. And one by Steve Porcaro and John Bettis. The first track is called Wanna Be Startin' Somethin'. And it was written by Michael Jackson himself and clocked in at over six minutes. The song is about rumors that people would start about him to cause conflict. This song was recorded in 1979 and he was going to include it on his previous album, album, which was called Off the Wall, but it wasn't ready in time. So he put it into Thriller. It was released as a single in May 1983 and was the fourth single off the album. 
peaked at number five on the Billboard Hot 100. Interestingly, he mentions the character Billie Jean in this song as well, say with the words saying she's always talking, which is uh, kind of interesting to hear how he kind of references that character. The second track is called Baby Be Mine. This is one of two songs on the album which didn't get released as a single. It's uh, the first of three songs on the album rid- written by Rod Temperton. Temperton was a British songwriter really known for disco songs like Boogie Nights for a band called Heatwave, Give Me the Night Baby, Come On for Patty Austin and James Ingram, which all reached number one. The third track was the first single released off the album, which is this The Girl Is Mine, which was a duet with another Final Four member, Paul McCartney. The album sold over one million copies and peaked on the charts at number two. Almost the entire band of Toto performed the music on this piece. It's a song about two guys fighting over a woman, and interestingly, the two of them never actually performed this song live together. Track four is the big one, Thriller. Oddly enough, this was the seventh and final single released off the album in November of 1983. This was also written by Rod Temperton. So Temperton had worked with Jackson on his previous album, Off the Wall. He wrote Rock With You off that album, which was the biggest song to come out of that album as well. He worked with Prince on The Color Purple. Uh, Rod supposedly died with a net worth of $125 million, and a big chunk of that came from the success of the song Thriller. As I said on the last pod, this song's music video was massive. Interestingly, the song itself only peaked at number four on the Hot 100 charts, but when it, uh, it, re- it always comes back onto the charts around Halloween. So what is Thriller really about? Yeah, it's a horror movie and fun, but supposedly it's also about Michael Jackson's fear of change and how he had to grow up. Um, as he was uh, kind of performing music. He'd gone through some pretty massive transformations over the years and didn't really like it. The fifth track is Beat It, another one of the huge tracks off this album. It was the third single that was released. It was also written by Jackson. It reached number one on the charts and was there for three weeks. The single itself, the album that was the single, sold 11 million copies, making it one of the biggest singles of all time. This was Jackson's attempt to put out a rock song, and he got Eddie Van Halen to play the massive guitar solo for the song. It also has a a huge music video which showed him fighting with two gangs. Um, The song's lyrics tell about solving conflicts like that peacefully. Sixth track, massive hit, Billie Jean. Billie Jean was the second single off the album and was also written by Michael. The song reached number one and is his best-selling single ever, so Beat It sold 11 million copies. This sold even more. Michael said he wrote a song about a fictional character, Billie Jean, who represented all the groupies who would flock to him and his brothers when they were out on tour. In his biography, there's a story that a woman who regularly sent him letters claiming that he was the father of her twins, um, they arrived regularly and really disturbed Jackson. Eventually, it culminated in him being sent a gun a picture of the kids and a letter that he should kill himself at the same time as the woman that was sending it so they could be together. Um, the, the rumor is the woman was in a psychiatric ho- hospital, but this really bothered Jackson and uh, it pretty disturbing story in general. The next and seventh track is one of the songs that wasn't written by Jackson or Temperton. Human Nature It was also the fifth single to come off the album. It was written by Steve Porcaro, who was the keyboard player for Toto. It was about a boy who had a crush on his daughter, and it was a pretty weird premise for a song. It reached platinum and peaked at number seven on the charts. 
The eighth track, called Pretty Young Thing, or PYT, was written by Steve Ingram and Quincy Jones. It was the sixth single to come off the album and is also the sixth track to reach the top ten on the charts. Michael wanted all bangers on his album, and he got it. Interestingly enough, Jackson never performed this song live. I can't figure out why. Um, I've seen some talk on some of the chat when I was reading about tension between him and Quincy Jones, so I wonder if that was really what was going on there. And the final track is the second song that never got released as a single, The Lady in My Life by Rod Temperton. Not much to say about this album, this song. I couldn't find a lot of details on what it was about, who, what he wrote it for. So uh, it, it never got released as a single and not a lot of press on it. So if you know anything about it, let me know. And now on to let's talk about Tapestry from Carol King. So I said in my last pod, the entire album of Tapestry is Carol King singing a number of songs that she had already written. Um, so these were either had been or would be sang by other people. The album was really just a celebration of how great of a songwriter she truly was. The album was 11 songs long. A number of the songs had introspective style and how King thought about herself and her relationships. Her first song really comes out swinging. It's I Feel the Earth Move. It starts the album off with an upbeat note and it's about falling in love. It was packaged with another track. It's too late for the single album that was put out back in the day. They would do A and B side albums. Um, I feel the Earth Move was on the A side. It was too late was on the B side. The combo of these two is called uh, a double A side by Billboard because both of the songs were just so good. They both got to number one on the Hot 100 and this song remained on there for five weeks. The second track, So Far Away, which was something I'd not heard before. It was written by King and is really about missing someone who's a long way away. This will be a theme throughout this album, but James Taylor played guitar on this song. It was put out as a single, but it never even got on the charts. So um, the third track, It's Too Late, was also her other biggest song. It wasn't recorded by anybody else, which is kind of interesting. Um, this song is about the end of a relationship and is somewhat controversial at the time because the relationship was being ended by the woman, which was seen as kind of rare and risque in the 70s. But the song did reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100, was there for four weeks. King's version of this song won Record of the Year in 1972. I had to look what is the difference between Record of the Year and Song of the Year? I guess Song of the Year goes to the writer of the song, while Record of the Year goes to the artist who recorded it. I'm learning so much. The Grammys are crazy. Track four is called Home Again and is about her returning home, which was her home of Brooklyn, New York. She actually recorded a concert live in Central Park, which she called Home Again, which was about this song. This wasn't released as a single, but it really shows her melodic, poppy, singer-driven style. At number five is the song Beautiful. It was released as the B-side of another single, You've Got a Friend. It's really a short number, but it had a large impact. The song was actually sang by Barbara Streisand first on her album, Barbara Jones Streisand, and later on by Anne Murray for an album called Annie, the same year as Tapestry, actually. It's also now the name of a Broadway musical about Carol King and her life, and this is part of the soundtrack for the musical, and it really shows how she came into success and her life story. So it's, a, it's supposed to be a pretty cool play. Some people were talking about this on Discord as well. There isn't much out there on the sixth song, which is called Way Over Yonder. The only thing I can find is that it had some religious undertones and referenced some of her early gospel roots when she was growing up. Her seventh song is really... Uh, an interesting one. It's You've Got a Friend, 
which was written by King, but it was recorded by both James Taylor and Carol King. Interestingly, it was recorded the same day using the same musicians playing it while we were there. They were there. Uh, Taylor's version won best male performance for him and song of the year for King. So it's kind of interesting that the same song won both of them Grammys. Uh, Taylor's version also reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100, which is kind of interesting that his version of it went to the top. The eighth song is called Where You Lead, and it was one of the few songs on the album that she co-wrote with someone else. This was co-written by a woman named Toni Stern. This song was actually used for the theme song of the hit TV show Gilmore Girls later, and it became a top 40 single for Barbara Streisand, and then Babs recorded it live and re-released it and did well again. So a lot of Barbara Streisand using Carole King's stuff. The ninth song on the album was another one that had been written for somebody else. Will You Love Me Tomorrow was first released in 1960 by a group called The Shirley's. It became a number one hit. And as I said on the last pod, it was the first number one hit ever for a group of black women. The words were composed by her then husband, Gary Goffin. On King's version, Joni Mitchell and James Taylor perform as the backup vocals on the song. They played it at a much slower pace and uh, more uh, singer-songwriter style than the Shirley's performed it. The second single and the 10th track was a rather silly song named Smackwater Jack. Uh, Like so many of the songs on this album, it was recorded by a number of other artists. It was actually used by Quincy Jones for his album with the same name. He had an album named Smackwater Jack. It's a very different song. Uh, than other songs on this album because it's kind of silly about a fight between an outlaw named Smackwater Jack and Big Jim the Chief. So many of our other songs are about her life and her introspection, but this one is just kind of uh, off off the wall. So the 11th track on this album is actually titled Tapestry as well. I couldn't find hardly anything about this song. It was just all I could find was the lyrics. It wasn't released as a single. Don't have a lot of insights onto it. So if anyone knows anything about it, let me know on Discord what this song was all about. And the final song is probably her best known song, largely because it was sung so well by someone else. The 12th track is You Make Me Feel a Natural Woman, which is Aretha Franklin's best known song. It's what Aretha is known for. And this is um, called one of the best known love songs of all time. And King gives it her own twist with this performance. Franklin is known for her massive, booming voice, and King is much more subtle and sweet in the way she performs it. It's kind of a cool contrast. Interestingly, later on, Mary J. Blige and Celine Dion both remade this song in 1995, and both of them were on the charts at the same time with uh, their versions of it, and it just shows how timeless this song was, that every person that's pretty pretty much recorded it has done well with it. So there's our two albums uh, that meet up in the the final four here. So I didn't think two albums could be much more different and both reach the final four. Jackson wrote some of his songs and he wasn't afraid to go out and get pieces. He really ranged from rock, R&B, pop. King, on the other hand, hand wrote every single song. If Even if she wrote it with somebody else or for somebody else, she wrote them all. She may have let others perform it, but she really made them her own here. So the moment you've all been waiting for, the results. Moving on to the finale is Thriller by Michael Jackson with 63% of the vote. The highest selling album of all time just continues to moonwalk its way 
to the finals. So we'll see who are they get, who is Jackson up against in the finals. Second matchup. Um, in reality, these two albums are kind of similar. They're there are two groups of people who probably did enough drugs to kill an elephant. There are some interesting group dynamics at play, except for the Beatles weren't all sleeping with each other. Both really experimented with their sounds on these albums, and it paid off in a big way for both of them. The first from the soundtrack bracket is Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, and its opponent from the grab bag bracket is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Both of them were the number one seeds and had to beat some really strong albums in order to get to the final four, but we'll see which one of them is moving on to the final two. So, starting with Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. As I said on the last pod, this is the 11th album by Fleetwood Mac, but it's really the second with the makeup of this band. The band had learned a lot on the first album that was put together with this group because it did so well. They had a lot of top hits, Um, but they were really going through some stuff on this album. A lot of turmoil, and as we'll see as we go through the tracks... Um, it seems like uh, they really put their themselves into this album. And it does seem like bands who are struggling with something seem to really put out their best stuff. And even Stevie Nicks, who is uh, one of the lead singers of Fleetwood Mac, is quoted as saying, Fleetwood Mac makes their best stuff when they're in their worst shape, <laughs> which is such a funny quote um, for an artist to say. It's interesting that being this is the second album with the newer members, a lot of the songs were written by people who are not named Mick Fleetwood or Mac, John McAvee. Those are the two guys who the put the band together, but they're only credited on one of the 11 songs that were on the album. Three of them were written by Lindsey Buckingham, who was the new guitar player and lead singer that joined on the last album. Three were written by Stevie Nicks, who was who joined with Lindsey Buckingham for the previous album. And four were written by Christine McVie, who was John McVie's wife. And one was actually pulled together from all the different band members. And we'll talk about how that actually worked out. But because of the drama, the drug use, the health of the band members, this album took over a year to actually pull together and get into, into releasable shape. So it's a, it's a long slog to actually get this thing through. The first song on the album was called Secondhand News and was written by Lindsey Buckingham. This will be a trend throughout it, a song about finding optimism after be, after a breakup, which is assumed to be about his and Nick's relationship coming to an end and the fact that he was moving on with other women. A lot of his um, writing on this is really about him like trying to show he's moved on, which is kind of funny. Uh, must have been just totally ruined by his relationship. I thought one of the critics' comments were just hilarious. It's the best song ever about rebound relationships, which um, is, is pretty funny. In their biography, Buckingham said that he introduced it to the band without lyrics because he didn't want to get into a fight with Stevie Nicks when he was pitching it. It never was actually released as a single, but it's been used throughout pop culture a lot. and you It's definitely one you'd recognize if you heard it. Song two is the most successful song off of this album, Dreams. It was the second single released off the album and is the only one to reach number one on the Hot 100. Stevie Nicks wrote it and was the lead singer. This song was written when she was still with Buckingham 
and she was thinking about her need for personal freedom and her vul- the vulnerability she felt in that desire. So it was kind of about like dreaming about being on her own, which is <laughs> kind of interesting. Supposedly, the, to- the song took a lot of mixing and layering to get where it ended up, but it really showed how well the group worked together in spite of their personal relationship. Stevie brought it to the band and they didn't love it, but they thought, saw the potential there. And then all the different members kind of added their spin on it and turned out one of the best songs they've ever made. The third song on the album is called Never Going Back Again and was written and lead singing by Lindsey Buckingham again. It feels like he must have really been torn up because this is another one about how the relationship with Nick's had ended and he was feeling happy about moving on to another relationship with somebody else. It's a lot more acoustic than a number of their other songs, which offers a little bit of a nice contrast and kind of slows it down. Fourth track on the album is the first one written by Christine McVie called Don't Stop. This was the third single off the album, peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100. And relationships were just a mess with this band. And supposedly this was a song about John and Christine McVie's divorce. Um, Supposedly John didn't know this song was about him until after the album was out, which how did he not? Right. Like, but still, he claimed it in one of their biographies. Bill Clinton uh, actually used this at political rallies during his run to the presidency and really focused on the lines, don't stop thinking about tomorrow, which, you know, if you're in the middle of a divorce, it's pretty obvious that uh, this song should be about you. (laughs) Um, Buckingham's third song on the album is the fifth track, and it's Go Your Own Way. Gee, wonder what that one's about. Nick's broke this dude. Like, he is just a train wreck when writing this album. This song was the debut single off the album and was released previous to the actual release of the album and ended up in the top 10 on the Hot 100. It was recorded actually in three parts, with the musicians not recording it together because they didn't want to be in the same room at the point when they were putting it together. And then their producer just kind of layered it together and put it in there. So it's interesting when you think about listening to this song. None of those people were actually near each other when they recorded it. Songbird is the sixth song on the album and is written and sung by Christine McVie. It really almost is an acoustic single just by McVie. They recorded it in a concert style in a big concert hall full of microphones, and it's just her and a piano, which is really a cool contrast. It's a lot different than almost all of their other songs, and they often actually close out their concerts by just having McVie go out there and play on the piano by herself, which is... it. Hearing the song, it actually would be a great concert ender. The Chain is the one song on the album that has all five members listed with a writer credit and is the seventh song on the album. The band often opens their concerts with this song, and it's a it's a representation of how, despite all of the conflict that was going on with the five of them, all five of them are better together as a band than they are apart which I thought was a kind of cool concept. So check this out. This bo- the song is actually a Frankenstein combination of a few other songs that they had written. The band claims in an interview that John McVie and Mick Fleetwood had laid down a ba- bass line that they thought was pretty cool when they were just messing around and recorded it. Nix had recorded the lyrics to the song and had that just lying around. Chris McVie had worked out the bluesy style of the sound for another song called Keep Me There. And the producers were able to take like the bluesiness of it, the bass line and the lyrics and kind of splice it all together, like cutting it all up. And they created this song. It's just so crazy how musicians are able to do things like that in post-production. 
Song eight is called You Make Loving Fun, written and sung by Christine McVie. This is the fourth and final single off the album. It also made it into the top 10 on Billboard 100, peaking at number nine. McVie wrote the song about an affair she was actually having with a crew member who was on the lighting crew. However, in order to avoid fights with her recently divorced husband, John McVie, she said it was about her dog. This album is so wild. Like they just uh, they're all over the place. Um, Stevie Nicks wrote their ninth song, I Don't Want to Know, before joining Fleetwood Mac. This was something that she had wrote for her and Buckingham to sing back in the day. There's an interesting pattern in the songs on this album. Nick's songs are about a conciliatory breakup where both sides come out better off, but Buckingham's songs are really about the conflict of the breakup, and this one's no different. On the 10th song, it's called Oh Daddy. It's the final song on the album. It was written by Christine McVie. There's a bit of controversy about what this song is actually about. A couple of the band's biographers said that this song is actually about her affair with the lighting director again, but Christine McVie claimed later on that it's actually about Mick Fleetwood, who was the only father in the band, but she also claimed it was about her own father and her poor relationship with him, so couldn't keep her story straight um, on there. So the last song actually on the album was written by Stevie Nicks and is called Gold Dust Woman song is about exactly what you think it is about cocaine supposedly stevie had done a lot of it and started working on this arrangement at four in the morning high as a kite she went really weird with it started breaking glass she wrapped her head in a scarf to give it a muffled sound she like wrapped all the microphones in scarves it's the weirdest song on the album probably the only one not about a relationship it's just well i guess it's about a relationship but with cocaine so it's a very different song to the other ones on the album and now to dive into our last album on on the list and our fourth one it's the beatles sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band as i mentioned on the last pod this album was inspired by an acid trip paul mccartney had on an airplane when he was flying over kenya He envisioned the album where each of the four Beatles members assumed different personalities. They didn't all take on names, I guess, when I was looking into this, but he he thought they'd each be able to become a different person in the band, could try different things if they, they weren't called the Beatles. It gave them the freedom to experiment with different styles of music than they'd played prior. The group started messing around with some psychedelic sounds, including Indian music. They brought a little Motown into it, R&B, and they were mixing different sounds throughout. So one of the things I read when looking into this album, it said that this is when Paul McCartney really took over as the main creative force of the Beatles. I did find it interesting when I was digging into this album, there were two songs that were supposed to be part of this album but weren't included in it. Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane were released as a single disc prior to the release. Strawberry Fields on the A side, Penny Lane on the B side. It was a decision made by the record company to try and get people to buy both the singles album as well as Sgt. Pepper's. Imagine if those two songs were on this album as well. I mean, it's already good, but holy crap, those are two of their best known songs that weren't on this album. Interestingly, they didn't have the Billboard Hot 100 back when this album came out, and they didn't really track the charts as closely as they do now or even did starting in the 70s. So I don't have a lot of info about how well these songs did or when they were released, but I'll try and kind of fill in some of the gaps there. The first song actually carries the same name as the album. It's almost an intro song where the audience is talking at the beginning. You kind of hear the music like warming up and starting in that way, like you're at a at a 
concert or something like that. It was written by McCartney, and it's less than two minutes long, but it's really kind of setting up the rest of the album. The second song is one of the biggest songs to come off this album. It's with a little help from my friends. This song is one of the few songs from the Beatles where Ringo Starr is the lead vocalist. The song was written by Lennon and McCartney, but Ringo stepped into his alter ego of Billy Shears, which is one of the few named uh, alter egos on this, and he sings this song, which just kind of shows you how they were coming about it from a different perspective, letting Ringo sing the second song on the album. The song even kind of pokes fun at Ringo's singing voice with the first line, what would you do if I sang out of tune? And would you stand up and walk out on me, right? Like it's him kind of acknowledging and playing to the, the fact that I know you don't, you're not here to hear me sing. Uh, makes it even better knowing what they're saying there. Uh, being a kid who grew up in the 80s and 90s, I'm probably more familiar with the Joe Cocker version of this song because it was the theme song for a classic show that I watched all the time called The Wonder Years. A little bit down a rabbit hole here, but it turns out Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin actually played the guitar on the Joe Cocker version of it too, which was also a number one hit and did really well. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is the third track on the album and was primarily written by John Lennon. Lennon swears that the song was written about a painting that his four-year-old son did and is a reference to the Lewis Carroll's um, Through the Looking Glass from Alice in Wonderland, but everybody knows it's about LSD. I mean, Lucy Sky Diamonds, LSD, is right there in the title. There's no way you're like, not writing about drugs right there, John. Um, this is probably the best-known song from the album, and it was later covered by Elton John, the fourth track from the album is Getting Better, which was written by McCarthy and Lennon together. When I was reading through the details, someone pointed out that this song has almost the same chord structure as Penny Lane, and now I can't unhear that. When I was listening to the two side by side, it was like, oh my gosh, yeah, they're very similar. Supposedly in an interview later in his life, John Lennon referenced this song and some of the lyrics in it about it being about his behavior towards women earlier in his life and how he had changed once he found peace. He said that he had, used, he had used to beat up his girlfriends back in the day, and this song was about him becoming a less violent man, and he learned not to be violent. And it, it's just crazy to think that that was only 60 years ago, where this kind of uh, thing was normal. And it, it's great to see, you know, getting better all the time, right? Like, it's uh, hopefully true. Paul McCartney called the fifth track, Fixing a Hole, his ode to pot. He said that Pot would open his mind and let him wander and create artistic things. However, in 2021, he got a little bit more honest and said this song was about a small blue hole that would appear every time he did LSD. It appeared in the same spot in his peripheral vision and was the same size. So just weird. Some of these tracks when they're talking about drugs are just crazy. Track six is She's Leaving Home. It was written by McCartney. And the chorus was put together by Lennon. Interestingly, Starr and Harrison weren't involved in this song at all. They used a string orchestra for the entire musical element. It was a much different song than many of their other songs on this album. It was almost like a classical arrangement where they, they just were singing with an orchestra. John Lennon wrote Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. And this is another just super strange song. It was based off an 1843 poster that he had purchased at like a flea market that was a for a circus and it had those exact words in the middle of it being for the benefit of Mr. Kite and it's the seventh track on this album 
it was just the words that are used in the song were on the poster and it's supposed to just describe what a circus was like. There's animal noises, there's all sorts of things going on. It's done in a festival style with accordions, organ grinders, and all sorts of types of music that you'll hear at a festival. And it really just describes what the different performers are doing. They're like jumping through rings. These dudes must have been on so many drugs. Like it's crazy what these they put on this album. Track eight is George Harrison's sole writing credit on the album, and it's called With Within You, Without You. And it sounds a lot like walking down the street of Agra, India. I traveled to Agra when I was in college, and there are a ton of street performers there with sitars and flutes just sitting there playing music. And that's what this song sounds like. It just sounds like sitar players and drums. Um, Harrison was the lead guitarist for the Beatles, but at the time he had started to learn how to play the sitar from a master sitarist named Ravi Shankar, which he, he really played almost all of the stuff on here. McCartney claims he wrote When I'm 64, which is track nine, when he was 14, and it was one of the first pieces he ever wrote. He wrote about how th- he thought his life would unfold before the Beatles were even a thought. It feels like a really different song from almost every song on this album because it's not experimental. It's not different. It's not about drugs. It's it's very much uh, uh, an introspective track from McCartney. Man, there are some weird, weird songs on this album. Lovely Rita is track 10, and it's about the word meter maid, which is a U.S. slang term for a traffic enforcement officer who gives out parking tickets. The Beatles, being that they're from Liverpool, England, had never heard that term before, and they became obsessed with it. There is a story that McCartney got a ticket from a meter maid in L.A., and that's where he first heard the term, but he later denied that that was what it was about. But yeah, just lovely Rita, meter maid, is like the main words in the whole track. So many drugs. They must have been high constantly. The next song is Good Morning, Good Morning. It was written by John Lennon. It's based off a commercial for Kellogg's Corn Flakes that he heard while he was watching TV in the morning. It's the 11th track. Supposedly the good mornings on the song are from the commercial itself. So he took the track from Kellogg's commercial and put it in a Beatles song. Lennon later said that he thought the track was a piece of garbage. Um, I listened to it and man, I had no idea what they were actually talking about. So it's just crazy song. The 12th song, they reprise the first track with a bit of an upbeat Motown style. It says that the album is over, but it really just melds into the 13th and final track, which is called A Day in the Life. It was written by a combined effort between John and Paul. They really did find inspiration for tracks all over the place with this album. And supposedly this song is based off of reading local newspaper headlines that were in the studio. They just had them laying around and they saw saw the, the headlines and put them in the song. Interestingly, this song was banned from play on the BBC because of the line, I love to turn you on, which was supposedly a drug reference. And it's just funny how far things have come now with what gets banned and what doesn't. It has a grandness to it, the song does, because of the use of orchestra and the arrangement. Some of the reviews I read when prepping for this said it's actually the Beatles' greatest song of all time. I feel like that's a bit of a stretch, but it's got so much depth and so many different layers to it. It was a really great song. So there you go. Those are the two albums that are up against each other. Let's get to the results. It's interesting when I started talking about doing this podcast with one of my friends, he said, well, you'll have to be careful because if you put the Beatles in a bracket, it won't be any fun because everyone is going to know that they're just going to win it all. 
I'll be honest, I was actually kind of worried about that. However, they didn't know how strong rumors would be. The Beatles put up more of a fight than any other album has yet, but rumors still took 63% of the vote and moves on to the finale. So there we have it. The final is now set. It's Michael Jackson's Thriller from 1984 versus Fleetwood Mac's Rumors from 1978. It's kind of crazy that these two albums only came out six years apart from each other. It feels like they were from very different times, but I guess not really, but they, they're very close in time. When I was looking at the numbers when I set this up, I had a feeling that it would come down to these two, and it's interesting to see how it played out. These are the two albums in our bracket of 65, which each had over 30 weeks at number one on the charts. They're the two albums that had over 500 total weeks on the charts. There were only two albums which had sold over 20 million copies, according to the RIA, and it was these two, and both of them had RYM scores of four or higher. They were the two biggest albums on the list of Grammy winners and absolutely deserve to be the last two standing. So who you got? Can Thriller take on the onslaught that is rumors? Will album sales lead to a victory for Thriller in our very first bracket? It's really up to you all. Voting will be open until Thursday, June 8th at noon central time, 1 Eastern. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave a review five star on your podcasting service and check us out on social media with that thank you so much for listening this has been so much fun to see this starting to take off seeing people interact seeing a number of people starting to vote um so i really appreciate your participation and remember you may not like the results but you can't argue with the process if you don't like how things are going the only way that you can change it is to invite more of your friends with similar music tastes to vote and most of all don't forget to enjoy the madness 